understanding death, or not understanding death, but certainly knowing it's coming, it's looming, makes me think about life. And I am very, very, very aware that my life is finite. And so I have today. That was Donita Menon. And this is episode 193 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 193 of the show with Donita Menon. She is the grief and bereavement coordinator at the Leukemia Foundation in Australia. Uh, more about her in a moment. Thanks so much for downloading the show. Thanks for listening. If you're new, welcome. Glad you could be here. Uh, if you're if you've been here since the start, stoked. If you've been here since halfway, stoked. That's not a word ever. Sorry. Uh, but I'm grateful that you're, you're here and, and we're here together and we're doing this together because, yeah, you know what? We're all here. We're all doing this together. We all live in our community together. And, you know, the more that we can share each other's stories, the, the, the closer we feel together and the more peaceful everything is. Isn't that right? Yeah. Speaking of sharing um, your story as well, you can uh, send me a photograph of what you're looking at while you're listening to this show. I love to get those photos. We like to call them Podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E. Some cracking photos uh, this week. Uh, people on the road from uh, Byron up to Brisbane, people in a dentist chair in Long Beach, California, uh, wherever you happen to be, just tag me in a photo, uh, Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat, wherever, or you can just email them, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thanks everyone that got in touch this week. I hope your week has been okay. Last week I told you that I would sit here and brag to you that I managed to get eight hours sleep three nights in a row. I did not do that. Uh, I didn't managed one night in a row. Oh no, last night I did. Saturday, yeah, Sunday morning now. So I managed it last night. So one night in a row. That's good. That's that's a hundred percent improvement on last week. So small goals. Small goals. I did manage a run or two this week, which was great. I I had forgotten what happens once I get to a run of around fifty minutes or so. My fitness is at a point where I can run for fifty minutes or more now. And when I get to 50 minutes, I don't know what it is, but it always, always happens around there, 48, 52 minutes, somewhere around there. Something clicks in my brain. And that is where the revelations and the ideas and everything just kind of appear in your head. Well, in my head, at least. I don't know exactly what the physiological aspect of this is. I'm sure a sports science person listening to this show will tell me exactly what it is. But it's the feeling where the fog lifts and the brain which has been subconsciously working on whatever has been going on in your head, the brain makes the good feeling drugs and starts pumping them out into my head. And then suddenly all the problems that I went out of the house with turn into solutions. And that's when the, the, the really good ideas come and all the best ideas I've had in my life and in my career all come at that point of my run. Um, it's where whatever was going on in my head as a problem solves itself and I come home feeling lighter than when I had I'd left my house. It can happen on a walk too, if you're keen. But I like I like to jog. I jog pretty slowly at the moment, but that's okay. I'm still getting back into the swing of things. 
I did uh, put a deadline on getting back into the swing of things, though. I signed up for the Bridge to Brisbane, which is a 10K run in a, in a couple of weeks. So if you're going along, uh, I'd love to see you there. I'm hoping to bring it in under an hour. Hoping. I can barely get 8Ks done in under an hour, but we'll see how I go. I don't know how I'll do. I, I haven't run a long time since uh, I've been rehabbing my hip a little while ago, but we'll see how we go. A big thanks to everyone that supports the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher. Thank you all. You know who you are. Without you, I can't make the show. If you feel that this show brings you some value, please, if you're listening to this show and it gives you, oh, that's a really good thing feeling, maybe consider throwing some shekels our way. As little as five bucks a month will get you in on the exclusive episode feed, which uh, I send out to people who who support the show through patreon.com slash osher. You can support for more money than that. Some $20 subscribers came through this week. Thank you so, so much. But all the money goes to pay Andy, my audio producer, and Haley, my production coordinator. These are the two people that helped me make the show. Without them, I couldn't make the show. It's quite simple. I, I've been having the support of Patreon supporters for the last year and a half, and it's no exaggeration to say the show wouldn't exist at all without you. So thank you. Thank you, thank you for making this show happen, not only for yourself, but for others who perhaps can't afford to support the show. So thank you very, very much. Let me get straight to my guest today. Donita Menon is the Grief and Bereavement Coordinator at Leukemia Foundation Australia, the Leukemia Foundation Australia. Her job is to talk both with people who have been diagnosed and with families, I guess, before and after the passing of a loved one due to a terminal uh, diagnosis. You can follow the Leukemia Foundation in Australia on Twitter, L-E-U-K-A-E-M-I-A-A-U-S. Leukemia A-U-S is, is their Twitter handle. She has a brilliant story. Her personal story is, is equally interesting and I can't wait for you to hear it. It is actually quite fortuitous that we spoke on this day because we had had the podcast scheduled a few months in advance for, for various reasons. The two of us couldn't make it to the same place in time. But Haley, who I just spoke about, managed to find some time that both of us could make. And when we first booked it, my mum was in partial remission from myeloma and was still living independently and doing fine when we booked in this show. But by the time we came around to recording this, as you know, my mum has passed away. So Danita and I didn't have a therapy session. I wouldn't do that to you. But what you'll hear is a conversation about death, about dying, and about living that was very real for both Danita and myself. I'm stoked that Danita came over. I'm really grateful that she was generous with her time and we were able to do this on this day because it it was a conversation I needed to have that day and I, I hope you get something out of it as much as I got out of it. So thanks so much for listening. Whatever you're doing with your day, I hope you enjoy doing it while you listen to this, a conversation with Danita Menon. Welcome. Thank you. Danita, how are you? I'm good. I'm really good. Yeah? Um, yeah, but a little bit nervous because I haven't done this before. Oh, so. that's just a chat. We just chat about who you are and how you came to be where you are. That's okay. It's really like sitting in my house. Sounds, We're in my kitchen table. That sounds like a great Having plan. a cup of coffee and a cookie. Absolutely. That's about a, as delicious, a delicious cookie. That's about as threatening as it's going to get. <laughs> great. Um, but you work for the Leukemia Foundation, don't you? Yep. So I'm the Grief and Bereavement Coordinator of the Leukemia Foundation. I, or the, the counsellor, really. Mm -hmm. And my work is involved 
being uh, people who are bereaved. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's where I started with working with people who are bereaved. But um, since then, I also work with pe- people who have a diagnosis of a blood cancer, mm. and um, also the, the anyone in the member any member of their family. So um, for the whole of New South Wales and ACT, right, um, and um, a lot of it by telephone, and some of it face to face. Yeah, yeah. Did you grow up in this part of the world? No. So I was born in Bombay in India and um, I lost my father when I was 13 yeah. uh, from a heart attack and I lost my mother when I was 15. And um, very kindly, my sister and brother-in-law were living in Australia. They were all of 30 and um, decided that they would yeah. take me on. That's a big city to be 15 and alone in. Yeah, well, I wasn't alone. I no. had I had um, other siblings. Yeah, as but well. still, yes, to lose, orphan, absolutely to be huge. lose both your parents by fifteen yeah. in in a big place like that. Yeah, but it was a really so. It's a really beautiful community. It's a very community related country. Mm-hmm. So it was you're, you're not alone. That's certainly not what, how I felt. I had a an amazing family family and friends and mm-hmm. neighbourhood and all yeah. of that. But yeah, so. Um, Mum died in March and I was here by August. Wow, they got you here that quickly. Yes, yes, on compassionate grounds. So, wow. I don't, know, I don't know if we do that anymore. <laughs> no, no. So it's just I, bloody horrible, to I, be honest. I owe my sister and my brother-in-law my life in this country, really, um, because they were all of 30 and mm. brought out a 15-year-old girl yeah. to live in... The Sutherland Shire, you know. <laughs> wow. So you come from Bombay. Yep. Uh, Mumbai. Yep, Mumbai now. Mumbai now. Yeah. And you land in the Sutherland Shire. I do. Possibly the whitest place on earth outside of Norway. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? Um, so it was quite difficult, to be honest. And, um, so 1976 is when I arrived and it was... Um, I guess, I guess when someone, when you lose somebody, and you leave a country, you've got grief. But you also, you've got your obvious grief from leaving, losing your parents. Mm. But then, then you're losing everything. You know, your country, your culture, mm. um, your friendships, and all of that. Then you come to a place, so you can imagine what the Sutherland Shire was like. I was, I was like that. You know, that Indian girl who had a strong Indian accent. Um, the girl who wore a uniform two inches above her knees and a girl who had just lost her mum and her dad, you know. And then you come to this beach world of um, mm. lovely blonde-haired beautiful people mm. <laughs> and you speak with a different accent and you're starting school and you just don't know how to relate really. Um, so you, so I guess you know, it was a very difficult year. Um, I changed my accent deliberately mm-hmm. uh, because I just needed to fit in, and um, yeah, and made a few friends. Well, no, it took a while to make the friends. I think mm. it, it took a long while because you were just that awkward, odd kid. Uh, but um, so I suppose 1976. I got here in August. Would have had a pretty tough few few months. Yeah, from a Social point of view, yeah. Not never, never, never felt racism. Didn't feel that. I suppose when you're 15, you don't want to hang around the uncool child, you know. 
Yeah. You want to meet the, you want to be with the cool kids, and I wasn't that cool kid. Right. But fortunately, in 1977, I went to a co-ed school, Adela Sal Cronulla. And um, I met a lovely young boy who also had lost his parents. So he took interest in my well-being and started chatting with me, but he was also very popular with all the girls. Consequently, I got accepted. Mm. And since then, I've never looked back. Wow. Love the country, love the place, love everybody. You know, it's just fabulous here. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have, I mean, before your parents died, had you seen uh, other people in your extended family and extended community um, died? Have you seen other people near you face oh, death? yes, very much so. Okay. So death in India is very open, very common. Um, kids go to funerals. You'd have people's... People who died, their bodies would be, you know, carried across the street. So, oh, totally, totally exposed to right. that. It's not like here where it's where we just don't talk about it. No, no, yeah. there you very much. It's actually quite, quite now in, in now looking back as a counsellor in, in the area of grief, um, you really get a chance to grieve. You're allowed to grieve. Yeah. You're allowed to express grief. There's a great community support. The funeral, at that time, suddenly, 1976, the funerals actually happened from my home. So their bodies come home mm -hmm. and you sit around the house and family and friends and neighbours come through and, um, yeah, and you leave. And the, the bodies in the living room? The bodies in the living room. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, in my particular family, we're very musical, so... Um, yeah, you know, play songs and hymns because they have a religious dimension to it. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then you all the body's exposed and everybody is there. But you'd seen that quite a number of times before it was your own oh, parents? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. So I can't even remember not seeing it. Okay, so when yeah. it happened to you, was it, I guess you're like, oh, I know what this is, I know what happens now. In terms of the process, yes. yes. I knew what would happen as in the body would come home and there would be a funeral and I'd have been to, been to all of that. Um, I don't think you ever know what happens internally. No, of course not. Um, and that that was a whole yeah. new ball game, you know. So when it – I've only experienced uh, one other – I've been to uh, quite Catholic funerals. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to secular funerals and I've been to uh, one Greek Orthodox funeral. And of the, all the funerals I've been to, I found the Greek Orthodox one to seem to process the grief the best in that, and I don't know if this process was similar, but what you described does sound a little bit the same. After the funeral, um, there must have been 250 people there. Uh, he was a guy I played in a band with for a long time. He died in a uh, plane crash. Everyone lined up and the family was uh, mum and two sisters and the brother and the dad and a few other people. Everyone lined up and went down the line. Yeah. And at first, I mean, it was from the front row back, so it was very close people. And then, and at first it was just explosions of tears every time, oh, you're here, boom. And yeah. This went on for about two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, the family was done. It was all out of them. It was, okay. like, it was like squeezing a lemon 
dry. Mm. There was, and then at the wake, they were like, hey, we're well, no problem. It was almost as if that process of lining people up and having mm. everyone in the community go by and share the feelings, that initially it was quite overwhelming to them, but at mm. the end they were, they seemed happy. Mm. I think, well, that's the similar thing happens in India. So we, we're not talking small numbers at funerals. We're talking large yeah. churches overflowing yeah. um, because people just do that. Um, so yes, you you get exhausted after the lineup, but what is what I think is very valuable. So you're obviously exhausted, and after a while, you're just over people because you know in India there's just people around you all the time, so you're pretty tired. You're you almost don't want to see the next person, mm-hmm. and you do. Um, but I think what is really valuable. So I, I'm Catholic, so that's the only thing I can talk to you about right now is my own experience mm-hmm. from a Catholic perspective. So then we have a thing called a third day mass, where again, the community comes around and you get a chance to remember. We had a thing called a seventh day mass. We had a thing called a month's mine, and we have a thing called an annual anniversary. Mm-hmm. So at all those different events, um, the community comes and, and allows you to grieve. And then people make condolence visits. They just pop in. Pop in. Yeah. Everybody pops in to see how you're going. All of that's pretty exhausting while you're in it. Um, but in hindsight, I guess you're really allowed to grieve. You're really allowed to feel how you need to feel or want mm. to feel. And you're not, well, I was not isolated. I didn't feel isolated. I felt hugely supported. Yeah. Um, not by people just sort of coming and saying, how do you feel, but by just being there through the whole thing. You know, it was just, it's that. And Isn't it interesting that whatever, and we'll get into this a bit later, but whatever biological response happens within us as creatures when someone that we are bonded to is no longer there, mm. that causes actual physical pain that we feel and our emotions and our body to do strange things and, we, you know, we, we poo in five different times a day, we, we cry all the time, our nose runs, um, you know, and it, but all these traditions have kind of built up around this biological need we have, mm. which is kind of, I, feel, I find that's kind of fascinating that mm. if you take all of the religion out of it, if you just see what happens to us physiologically as humans, that various cultures have come from different angles to come to the same conclusion of this Absolutely. is this is what makes a human experience this physiological change different. Yeah. And it makes them stop feeling this way, but long enough that it's all right. Mm. Um so was it what happened with your own parents that 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 took you to this career straight away or did they have a bit of a banana, did they oh, have a bit of a, no, a windy no. road? So I came out to Australia. I went into year 11 and 12 um, and I think at some level I always had a sense of being interested in people and mm-hmm. how people are and what makes people tick and um, I had a real desire, for, you know, I was a deep and meaningful person from probably nine, you know, <laughs> and I guess at some level I haven't changed as much as I've grown up and I'm matured and I've got world life experience, but the person who I was, who I am today, I probably was as a little kid. Um, so I think when I came out to Australia, I had heard about social work and I thought I'd like to be a social worker. But as you can imagine, I was came to year 11 and 12, had never studied in a system in Australia. 
So I had to figure this all out while I'm grieving, while I'm readjusting, while I'm living in a new country. Didn't quite make the mark to get social into social work at the time, um, but made the mark to get into teaching, mm-hmm. which is also something I loved. So for 26 years, I worked as a primary school teacher. Fun. Yeah. Um, and loved it, loved it. Um, it certainly worked, in, you know, in my life, my kids, school, everything. It was, it was great. In the process of those 26 years, I also lost two siblings. So I lost a brother who died at the age of 45. Oh. And I lost a sister who died at the age of 42. Um, so when my father died, I had mum. When mum died... I really didn't have the capacity to be able to take grief on because I was coming to a new country, dealing with adjustment of growing up. I guess I guess I lost my teenage years, to be honest, if mm-hmm. I had to be honest with you. I matured overnight, you know. Um, so then I lost a brother. And then when I lost my sister in 1998, the grief was significant. Now, my sister was in India at the time, and I was very close to my sister. When I lost my brother, I was seven months pregnant. So, again, it was that moment of time where you've got to be careful, you've got to look after your baby, you're pregnant, so, you know, you've got to sort of deal with what needs to be dealt with. When my sister died in 1998, I suppose I had nothing else I needed to latch on to. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids were a little bit older. And my, I was very, very, very close to my sister. And she was in India. So it should have felt like someone broke my right finger. That's the pain it should have been, considering she wasn't living with me day to day, so it wasn't the sister here. But it felt like somebody had cut off my right arm. Oh. And I genuinely couldn't make sense of it at the time. I couldn't understand what that was all about. I lost interest in my own kids in my head at the time. Not, I didn't do anything different. I still went through the motions of looking after them and, of course, you know, have a very supportive husband. But if somebody said to me at that time, you can go too, I wasn't suicidal by any stretch of the imagination, but someone told me at that time I could go too, I would have been okay with it, you know, it didn't matter. But I also knew that that didn't feel correct and I didn't go and seek help, but I have some great friends. And over coffee, I was talking about how awful it felt and um, discovered that what had really happened was that I had never really grieved properly for any of the other three because for whatever reason... I just didn't. And this time, I was grieving for all four for the very first time. And when I understood that, I began to heal. So so that's what happened then, and then I continued teaching. And... One day we were in the staff room and we were sitting there and, you know, teachers always have a chat, what will... We've got to put some money into the lotto. Let's see what we've got to do. And someone sat with me and said, you know, if you win the lotto, what would you do? And I thought, 
if I won the lotto, I would always need to work. So yes, I would quit teaching. But I think I would like to work with people who are dying or people who are bereaved for nothing. I do it for, as a volunteer. And that was a big moment in my head. And I thought, if I would do this as a volunteer, I wonder if I should do this as a career <laughs> and see if I can do this, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I, that was just a crazy thought in my head at the time, but, you know, stars need to align for mm -hmm. things to happen in your life. And I've got a beautiful GP who's a friend. And I said, you know, I'm thinking, I wonder if I could go and study counselling and do this. And I really respected her point of view. And she said, absolutely. I think you'd be fabulous. And if you become a counsellor, you can come and work in my GP practice and I would be very willing to refer clients to you. And, wow, that was a real, you know, that was trust in what mm. I, in me. I didn't ever want to do that or work for, with her, but I just thought, okay, okay, you've got confidence because I really respected her. I, I would have expected that she would have said, no, don't. So stars aligned. <laughs> um, my daughter was doing year 12. My son was going to year seven. I was able to not have to earn as much money because my husband's business was in a particular place. So I crazily decided to go back and study and I went back and studied counselling. And when I went back to study counselling, it was almost this incredible gift. I almost was a little bit guilty because I had time to navel gaze, if that makes sense, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of, I actually got time to look into myself and understand the human and do what I always just wanted to do. I just wanted to know about people and understand how people think and what what makes us tick and what makes us have a better life. And I was so excited to be having this, to have this opportunity to study. So, and I, I don't know whether, whether it was a subconscious level, but, but grief and bereavement was definitely something that mattered. And I think it wasn't about dealing with my own grief. It was really about knowing that however dark a place you are, with support, we can heal. And I was in a pretty dark place at some different times in my life. And I don't survive today, I live. And that's something to, you know, be pretty okay about because it wasn't always easy. So with that faith, with that personal faith, knowing that, um, I thought, well, okay, let's give this a shot and see what this is going to and, and I don't even know what, why I spoke about that at that lotto mm. moment, you know. Well, that was we the never, moment, though. We never, we never won lotto, but, you know, it was just that moment. But that was a big moment. It's a good discovery. question to ask. It's a good, it's one of those questions that's yeah. important to ask yourself. Yeah. If you wanted to, you know, if, if you're ever wondering, you know, am I going in the right direction? Well, you ask, if money wasn't an object, what would I be doing right mm. now? Mm. 
And exactly as you said, he said, well, hang on a second, I could probably get paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't even that. It was like, I could do it now. I yeah. don't have to wait to win the lotto. It was more mm. that. It was like, I don't have to wait to win the lotto. I don't have to wait to retire. I wonder if I can do it now. What was it like studying? Oh, crazy, because, of course, I finished my degree in 1981. Yeah. There were no computers then. Mm-hmm. We used to go to libraries and get books, and so I did not have any idea how to write essays and do all of that and, you know, this whole referencing and technology. And so it was mind-boggling. Uh, so I did my grad dip through the Australian College of Applied Psychology, but I have a daughter who was doing her HSC, a pretty bright one too. So she got to read and edit my essays mm-hmm. and help me through this, interestingly, uh, to write better, I suppose. Um, and... What was great about that about that course was there was a lot of interactive. It was applied psychology, yeah. so you, so we had to um, video mm. ourselves doing counselling sessions and um, then write based on theory. We had to then hand in the video. We had to, and that that was a lot of that, you know, a lot of that. So you got got a lot of practice and you got a lot of time to evaluate your skill mm-hmm. level and your skill base. And, um, yeah, so it, it was a great learning curve. Um, I got, did a fabulous placement in Calvary, a bereavement centre in Cochrane, and I had a brilliant supervisor. So that was my stepping stone to doing what I do today. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. What, when you first started seeing clients, like say after your first week when you're actually doing it for real, mm. what did it feel like? The first week, the first sessions weren't too hard. And I suppose when you first start doing it, you're, you're a rookie. So you're not meant to make it about yourself, but I think you do because you're just nervous and you're, and I suppose you're sitting there thinking, I wonder what I'll say next and what should I, this person's doing that and what will I say next. So, in fact, you tend to be sitting in your own head, which is not where you need to be sitting and you need to be sitting in the client's space, you know. Um, so I guess I would have started with the first session I had down pat because we had done so many first sessions through mm. the period. Probably more, it wasn't probably more when I started here, but when I started in Calvary, when the client came for the second session, and I thought, holy moly, what, what do we do now? <laughs> I know your story, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it was very challenging. and I and, um, But when you lose yourself and sit with, really, really, really sit with a client, then it's totally about the client. And then it doesn't. What you say or how you say it is secondary. When you actually have unconditional positive regard for your client, when you actually want to know where your client is, you then are connected. And to be connected is such a privilege and such an honour. So how do you feel? You feel you you hope that at the end of a session you have been able to connect. You hope that you've provided a space where a client feels safe and can unlock stuff, you know. 
um, and you stay, yeah, I guess that's what you feel. Mm. I was talking to Georgia earlier about you coming over. Um, mm. She's 13 and mm. she, had a, she had a very interesting question and it's something that I was wondering about as well, but how are you able to be there enough with this unconditional positive regard and be there as authentically as you possibly can be but then try and isolate not only yourself but your family from the energy that has been given to you through the session so at the end of the day when you come home you're not walking in the door with you know just grimness written all over your face <laughs> and interestingly it's not a grim job yeah so it's, they're very sad stories, of course. People are going through a lot of stuff. But it, it's not grim. It's sitting with what someone's going through and if you're going to be making it about them and understanding what they're facing, it's genuinely not about you. Mm. So, and, you, and I learn so much about my clients. I learn about resilience. I learn about... Facing a world that is so difficult, yet having to navigate it. I learn from them what it feels like to to be them and knowing fully well that whatever I think it is, it's not, mm. you know. I wake up every morning and I get to connect with someone at such in such a beautiful way. It's not, when you're talking about someone coming to counselling with who's got a diagnosis or going through grief, they don't have a problem that needs solving. They're not sick and don't need fixing. They just need a space to allow healing to happen. Mm-hmm. They need to be, to connect with you so that we, that they can figure that out, you know, with, with you. Um, so it's not me carrying somebody else's burden. Okay. It's really not. It's me connecting with a person. It's me, Wow, what a privilege, you know. I just tell you I'm a counsellor. You walk in the door and you sit there and you open your heart out to me. Like, really, you trust me. It's it's pretty pretty sacred moment and I don't mean that from a religious point no, of view, understand. just from a connection point yeah. of view. So it's never going home with... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burden, my family's well. Mm. I'm well. It teaches me to go home and love. It teaches me to, to be appreciative of the moment I have now, being fully aware that one day that will change for every single one of us. We're all going to die. That's the truth. And we're all going to be bereaved. That's the truth. So while in any other counselling you may be able to circumvent and say that's what they do, in this world this is what you and I are going to face. So heck, you know, but that's not today for me. It was yesterday. I lost a brother at the beginning of this year. 
Um, but it's not right this minute. So you know what? I've got today. Mm. And let me make today count. Yeah. Does that answer it? That does. Know. No, that, that does answer the question. Uh, what could we uh, in our society, in our community here in Australia, how could we... How can we have a, a more healthy approach to, to dying and death? Because uh, at the moment I, I feel I should tell you this. I was going to tell you before we started recording, but I should tell you this. Um, five weeks ago I lost my mum. Okay. And I lost her to myeloma. Okay. We had this conversation booked in well before any right. of that happened. Well, the Leukemia Foundation can offer you counselling. Right. Do you feel like coming? Right. And the uh, Leukemia Foundation are very good and she yeah. she was up in Queensland and uh, she used to look forward very much to her Sunday walks with the with the Leukemia Foundation. She had okay. uh, she had uh, two girls that would walk either side of her and she she they were they were very, very helpful. But what I did notice is as I was telling because I was flying to Brisbane every day um, to be with her and then mm. come back here to work and then I'd fly back up there, sometimes just for the day, and then I'd come back down. Um, that went on for a, a couple of weeks. But I did notice that as I was telling people what was going on, the reactions that people had was very much, that is the great unmentionable, we don't talk about that. Like, mm. that was, like people generally were so uncomfortable to, they didn't really know what to say to me, mm. um, but also didn't know what to do about, mm. it, it was this, this thing that we just don't, don't speak about, we don't, we just ignore it. Mm. That, Indeed, this is a thing as every single human being, if they're functioning, will go to the bathroom today. You know, it, it is a function that our body has is to eventually stop working. Yes. Every single person listening to this. What could we as a community do differently in our approach to death and dying, do you think? Okay, so I think one of the things about our culture here is there is this sense that everybody, that to be stoic is a good thing, to be strong is, which is not, it's not a bad thing, but it's, so somewhere along the line we, through osmosis, we get this thing that when somebody dies, you know, you've got to be strong, you've got to be stoic, you've got to hold your emotion together and if you're crying, oh dear, you know, you're not coping, if you're not crying, you know, you might hear somebody come home from a funeral and say, gee, you know, they did really well, she was so strong or he was so strong, as if it were a badge of honour to be worn and so people don't know what to say they don't know what to do there's no so and there is that pressure that you've got to move on let go be strong all of which just doesn't work I guess it's allowing somebody to be to actually say how you're going and then to actually listen. It's not even about what you say. Who cares what someone says? If someone really asks you, Osha, how are you? And wants to know and really, really wants to know and allows you to be, how cool would that be? It doesn't matter how you are. I don't think we allow people to do that. And consequently, if I know that if I'm going to say to you, you know, my mum died and you're going to say to me, oh, well, she's in a better place, at least she's not suffering, 
or you're going to say to me, you know, you've got to let go and move on. Um, she wouldn't want you to feel any other way. And, and so then I very quickly realise you're not the person I can grieve in front of. So I don't tell you anymore. I may try somebody else and I hear a similar sort of thing, so I don't tell them either. So what do I do? I tell nobody. I just grieve in isolation. And then I may think, when I'm crying, I'm having a really bad day, I wonder what's wrong with me. If I'm not crying, I'm judging myself and thinking, oh, I'm a bit hard now, what's wrong with me? So almost I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't, and I don't know, and I don't know who to go to, I don't know what to say. I don't want anyone to make me feel better. It's not about feeling better, it's just about allowing me to feel. So I guess what I would say to anyone who's listening, check in and just allow a person to feel and talk. Don't feel the need. So, you know, if someone brings up your mum's name and you cry at that point or there's almost this guilt that I've made you cry, but I haven't made you cry. It is the fact that you love your mum and you're missing her that's going to make you cry. And that's okay with you. If you cry, that's okay, you know. So I guess it's about just allowing that to happen. And I think it's also about grieving people generally don't reach out. And they don't, we, we, not even they, I'm grieving at the moment, I've lost my brother. We don't reach out because we don't want to bother people. We don't want to burden people. We don't want to bore people. We don't want to be the person who wrecks the party, you know. So we just pretend. And people read that as if things are fine. And things are fine. Of course things are fine. You're functioning. There's nothing wrong with what's going on in your life. You're totally functioning. But you can be functioning and grieving simultaneously. One does not mean that you're not grieving because you're functioning or because you're grieving. That, well, sometimes people are grieving and not functioning. So I guess it's connecting with people after that funeral is over, when everybody else has gone home, when everyone's finished sending their sympathy cards, when everyone's finished saying, I'm sorry. At that point, please pick up the phone. Please visit. Please don't ask, what can I do for you? Just do. Just say, come out for a drink. Just drop in. Just talk about that person who's died. Allow that person to talk without judgment. And if we could do that more and feel less that we've got to fix something, it might be a much more supportive environment and far less isolating, maybe. What happens if uh, what happens if grief isn't dealt with in a or allowed to go through its this process, this seeming process that our body goes through when we lose someone that we're bonded to? Um, I'm not going to give you any scientific. I don't have enough science back uh -huh. to give you that to say this is exactly what will happen, but suddenly what it what appears to happen. So grief can't go nowhere, it goes somewhere, right? Yeah. So if it's not um, expressed, where is it? It's sitting right inside you. 
So what can happen? It can lead to depression over time because you haven't dealt with it. It could lead to anger. So often all these emotions that are pent up come out in anger. Uh, that may not even be related to grief because it's come out that many years later that you haven't actually thought. It could lead to drinking, drugs, possibly to illness. I couldn't categorically say that it does. Mm. Um, but it certainly would have... It definitely would have a negative impact on you at whatever level that... However that would manifest itself. You know, if, the, if you do... If anything that you're going through is not dealt with... It can fester, mm. whatever that is. So um, I think we need a society to be to allow us to deal with stuff and deal with it with compassion. I think we need a society to ask to allow people to have self-compassion. I think we've lost self-compassion along the way. It's all about doing, getting somewhere being tired, working hard, getting somewhere and doing, you know, and, and you hear these sort of things like stop, smell the roses, do all of that. But I often work with clients and look at what self-compassion actually looks like. Have a read about it, have a think about it. And it's quite a novel thought for many of my clients, you know. They've spent so much time looking after the person who's died that they've forgotten themselves, which is understandable. That's where they need to be. But even with grief or with bereavement or with just living, hey, let's start filling our own glass. Let's start finding ways to stay, to stay connected with ourselves. Let's really look at it, you know, because I think it's so important. Let's be okay about making mistakes. Let's be kind to ourselves. We can offer compassion to others, yet we suddenly struggle with offering ourselves some compassion. And I think if I could tell people, please, look after you. Are we, um, as a species on this planet, are we alone in that we grieve? Wow, that's a question I don't know the answer to. Right. I'm just wondering if any other creatures Oh, any I other would imagine grieve. so. Yes, I would think so. Often clients would tell me how their dog and their cat are grieving the loss of the person who's uh -huh. in, yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm only saying that from a, from an anecdotal point of view. Yeah, yeah. yes. Oh, definitely, definitely. I would, I would yeah. suggest that. Why is animals... it? Why do you think it is that our body goes through this process after we lose somebody? What is, what is it? Love, love and grief, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Grief, the price you pay for love. Yeah, that's true. Because I was fascinated by it that, you know, and it's, it happens after a breakup, it happened after I got divorced, it happened, um, you know, and certainly after mum died, it was like there is an actual pain inside my body. I'm sure if I went through an MRI scanner, you would find absolutely nothing wrong with me. Sure. But why do I, why do I feel a physical pain? Well, your body, mind and spirit are connected. We're connected, aren't we? We're not isolated. You don't have a mind that's separate from your body. So we're all encompassing. We, At some level, we, I suppose we try to separate it. But we're completely connected as human beings. So, you know, you love with your whole body. Mm -hmm. You know, you hug whoever, 
You play with your dog, you give your dog a big cuddle, you love with your body. So when you lose, why wouldn't it affect your body? Of course it would. Yeah. Um, but it is important to know whether it's yours to check out, check up and see that you're physically okay too, you know. Uh, sometimes you can put it down to just grief, but you could actually have something else. So it's important to right. just check it out, you know. Okay. At, at all levels, really. Not not that I'm suggesting go for an MRI, but you know, <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly. I, and I would actually tell clients to go and get to their GP and yeah. just start getting themselves checked because in caring or in grief and you may lose sight of what feels okay. You may not realise what you're eating. You may not realise what you're thinking. You may not realise how you are. You may not realise... I don't realise anything because at the moment you might just be surviving. You're getting up every morning and you've lost meaning. So you get up, what everybody does normally, get up, have a shower, have a cup of coffee, get dressed. When you're grieving a lot, that could just be like climbing Mount Everest for you. Mm. And that's really hard stuff and it's not, normal, it's, not, it's not easy to do, you know, like what's the point? What's the point? I often have people say, what's, what's the point? And the point is that you're important. That's the point. And yes, you've lost meaning. Yes, you've lost. But we can, you, can, you can find it. You'll, you can heal. You mentioned yeah. that you work with people who have, who have been diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the fortunate thing in my situation is that mum was a doctor. I had been a doctor for her entire adult life. And before she worked as a GP, she was an anaesthetist. Right. And so mum had seen death and before that she was a refugee in, in World War Two. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. She had quite what a, a life. life. She had quite a life. But so death was nothing new to her. No. And she had seen death many, many, many times, hundreds if not more times. Mm. Um, just as, you know, with your doing ten surgeries a day every day, sure. you're going to see some that don't work. And that's just how it is. Um, and I remember this gave her a unique perspective and that's just like, look, I'm not afraid, I, I know. But for other people when they get a diagnosis it might be, you know, do they feel the grief that others feel when they're gone before they go? Do they have this grief of uh, particularly a, a, like a terminal diagnosis? Um, do they experience grief? after a diagnosis and how, how can you help them? Absolutely they experience grief. So grief is completely related to loss, okay? So it doesn't matter what you lose, you know? Sometimes even if you were single and you you get married, you've lost the the single life and you can have grief around that. So, so we all experience grief through our lives for lots of different things. But um, so when you get a diagnosis... I would imagine it would feel like you've been hit by a truck. Um, so I'm going to sort of share with you what I hear, not that it's categorically what happens to for everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. So each person comes with their story to me. So this is a bit of a generalisation. Um, so initially it is this, what what does this disease actually mean? You know, what is blood cancer? What is leukaemia? What's myeloma? What's lymphoma? Then you've got to go to the doctors and you've got to figure out what what all this means, a whole new language that you've never, ever known or understood. Dr Google, 
sometimes can be helpful, sometimes can be pretty scary. Um, and then there is, there seem, the initial thing seems to be this, I've got to live, I've got to survive, the fight for, for life, really. Um, fear, fear about death, dying, fear about living, what the quality of life is, fear about, but, you know, as a starting point, it's a good place to have this great belief system that it's all going to work. And then, of course, the horrible treatment. It's not because they're being treated badly, but the horrible treatment of chemotherapy and everything else mm. that goes with it is just horrific. Uh, one story, and everybody in that story is going through that individually. So if you're the person being diagnosed, your partner, your children, your parents, whoever around you, may have a sense of what they think you're going through, but whatever they think, it's not it. I wonder what it's like to be your wife. You as a person diagnosed genuinely doesn't get what it's like to be your wife, to watch you go through what you're going through, or your child or your parent or your friend or whatever. So one story and there's a whole lot of people going through grief individually. How do I help them? Um, so I think the first thing that I need to do is to actually listen and to give that person a space to think and feel how they need to think and feel without telling them how to think and feel. So you can imagine a family situation where someone's got a diagnosis, they come home and they're frightened about dying and you're the person who loves them and you say, you know, you can't think about dying right now, you've got to fight, we've got kids, you've got to be positive because if you're not positive, how's this going to be? So immediately you know then, hey, I better not share that because I don't want to upset my wife, I don't want to upset my child, I don't want to... So quietly you learn to be what you need to be for the pe person you're with. So often you don't have that space to actually talk about I'm frightened of dying and allow somebody to uh, and let that and be allowed to do, explore what that means. So when they come to talk to me, I allow them to explore their fears, to explore whatever. And I guess for me, it's giving someone a safe place to really unlock what's going on. So it's not about me promising the moon, I can't. Uh, but if they've got a space where they can grieve, they can actually explore what exactly is happening for them, whether it's around treatment, whether it's around relationships, because it's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, you know. Um, they've got a place to... Just talk about it. And I have to believe that in just doing that, it's a little bit helpful for them. I don't take any credit for what they, for that, but they're just giving them that space. Um, and I know, I, I suppose they do give me feedback. Um, and so I don't have this sort of, this is how you need to be and this is how you need to feel. And, you know, I don't tell people to fight. I think that whole idea of fighting has a real negative connotation to it 
I guess I say to, you know, I suppose, what would I say to them? Being positive and being negative are two ends of a spectrum. If you're not positive, doesn't automatically make you negative. Somewhere between being positive and negative is real. If someone just come and kicked you in the gut and then someone says, don't feel the pain, it's actually not possible, is it? So, really. Yeah. So it's allowing someone to feel that pain because it's real. So it's not about fighting. It's about feeling what you feel, grieving what you need to grieve, and accepting whatever needs to happen. So there's a whole treat there's a whole treating team that are going to do the fighting for you. There's a whole treating team that are going to put the medication and they're going to do the fighting for you. So if, if you choose that way. If you choose that way. If you choose not to, that's okay too. Um but it is it's about just allowing that person to be because yeah. gosh, you know, who am I to tell them how to feel? Who is anybody to tell another person how to feel and what to do and how to be? I guess that was one thing that I also saw from my experience, and I'm, I'm grateful for my mum's uh, knowledge and experience there, but I certainly wouldn't want to be someone less medically literate going into the chemotherapy process. Mm-hmm. She had the benefit of knowing exactly what she was in for. Sure. Um, yeah, there's some sweet-talking oncologists out there <laughs> who, you know, convincing people to go another, f- like, round four, round five. It's like, well, mm. Why? What is that going to give you? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, it, and, and this um, leads me to my next question, and you mentioned it just before. What role does acceptance have in the work you do? Acceptance of? What is happening? Acceptance of what is happening. Of... I don't think you've got a choice. What's your choice? At the end of the day, you've got a diagnosis. You're either going to go through treatment or you're not going to th- go through treatment. So you don't have... Mm. It's not something you can say, I'm choosing not to accept. But it can be a time where you can... So, so I guess when, they, when people come and talk to me, it's allowing them to, to unlock the fact that it's not fair and I mm. hate it and I don't accept it. And it's okay. Why? why it is what it is, you know. Mm. You, whatever it is, it is. And so if you're not in that place where you're not accepting it and you're really angry about it, you have every right to feel angry about it. It's okay. It's not my job to make you accept it. You will come to a place you need to come to, whatever that place is. Mm-hmm. And my role is to allow you the safety of that environment, to allow you a supportive place to be and to do mm-hmm. and to feel and to not guide that or steer it in a particular way because far be it for me to know where you're sitting and for me to control that, that's not what I want to do. I just want to make that time uh, a place for you to be comfortable to the best of my ability to make you feel comfortable, knowing fully well I can't make you feel comfortable. Mm. I know that. I don't sit there by any means thinking that my presence in your life is going to change a whole lot really it's just I'm one little grain of sand on that big beach <laughs> to make life I don't know whatever to make you to help you do I don't even know I'm going to say I'm going to help you do that I really don't couldn't take that credit either I'm just one grain of sand on that beach you know 
Well, I, I would say that you underestimate or undervalue what you do because someone like you, whether people realise it or not, is very helpful in the, in their whole process of of death and dying. And I, through my experience, um, would have appreciated a similar amount of, um, I don't know what the word is, mid midwifery, uh, midwifery. Like you have the midwife to bring you into the world. Sure. <laughs> Where is the midwife to take you? Hold your hand towards the end. Where is the person whose job it is to go, all right, so here we are. And this is probably what's going to happen to you and your body and mm. the family and, and help guide the family through that part. In palliative care there is. There is so I used to work part of my role. I was doing a few days in the Leukemia Foundation, but I was also working in pastoral care, mm-hmm. in palliative and in rehabilitation at that time. Yeah. Um, so in that, in that environment there is a space to do it. Yeah. I think I think there look I think there's social workers in hospitals and there are there, there are systems in place but the question is whether any of us are going to ask for it whether we feel it's okay to ask for the help uh, whether we feel so is there a stigma around asking to talk to somebody mm. um, is it that do we need to take away that stigma how do we reach out to everybody who's got a diagnosis of cancer mm. and to everybody's family saying, hey, it's okay to talk. It doesn't mean you're not coping. So this whole idea is if I ask for help, I'm not coping. But my thought is it's not about not coping. It's about if you had a broken leg, you'd use, you'd use crutches, you know. Yeah. Not because you're not coping. It's just going to be helpful to get you from one place to the other. So but the stigma is still... So there are a lot of people who don't even want to know about this yeah. through that. In fact, I remember going to um, a conference where they were actually talking about that. So, you know, they were talking about a radiologist who's there who's got this diagnosis happening and that person can see a person's really struggling with it. But as soon as that person might recommend them to yeah. see somebody, the answer is, no, I'll be fine. Right. I don't need the help because of that stigma. Yeah. I'm not... So when I when I contact a bereaved person, I sort of say, you know, and they say, look, I, I, I'm going okay. And I said, I'm sure you are. I don't doubt it for one moment. But I'm just going to tell you about what I'm going to offer you. So it's not about me because you're not going okay. It's a little bit like scaffolding. You know, you just sometimes want to hold on to scaffolding. Mm-hmm. It's just that. It's just a place to have a chat. It's just a mm-hmm. place to have someone to talk to. So... I don't have 10 strategies up my sleeve to tell you how to manage it. You know, I don't. <laughs> so you are going okay. Of course you are. But if you want to have someone to talk to, yeah, I'm here. How How is the work that you've done? Uh, well, let me, let me, of course it has. How do you look at death? Wow, that's a really good question because... <laughs> I told you I just lost my brother. So this is the first time I've had a loss in my family since I've been a grief counsellor. And that was a bit different because the last few times, you know, I didn't know much about grief. I guess I am not frightened of death in itself. I would still say I'm frightened of the dying process. And I guess that's more around 
I wonder what that will be from a physical perspective, the pain, putting people out, the, the suffering. Um, that would probably, I, I guess I would still find that challenging for myself. Saying goodbye to the people you love that you're leaving behind, um, that would be challenging. Um, so I still grapple with what death is, re what death really is, you know, what is it? Like one day you're alive and well and even watching my brother die through palliative care, you, you know, he was chatting, we were talking about death and dying and, and then suddenly he's just not there. And what the heck does that mean? You know, so... Yeah, it's a hard one. It, 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 to understand death, and I do think about death a lot mm. because I work in it and I've experienced it, it's a hard one to grapple with, you know, and, and what does death mean and where is there life after death? Isn't there life after death? What do you do with it? Um, yeah, it's not, it's not a simple thing. But I guess for me, understanding death or not understanding death but certainly knowing it's coming, it's looming, makes me think about life. And I am very, very, very aware that my life is finite. And so I have today. And so my, I don't always do it successfully, but when I do it successfully, it makes me feel pretty good. To stay connected with every person I am connecting with today. And that is what I try. Not successfully every day, but give it a shot, you know. Um, saying, telling people the lovely things you want to say to them, um, genuinely trying to enjoy the world around me to the best of my ability. And I'm not talking about the big things. I'm just talking about sitting in the winter sun at lunchtime and appreciating it, you know. So maybe that's what it's helped me do. But And I guess for me... It's saying I'm okay, I'm okay with my grief. I, I'm happy to wear the, the badge of grief on me and say, hey, if I'm sad today, it's okay. Please, telling my family, you know, if I'm crying, you don't need to console me. You truly don't. You just need to allow me. And if I want to talk, I'll talk. So, yeah, I don't even know if I've answered that question. No, you know? you've, you've, you've absolutely answered the question. Yeah. What, what, what you're saying is that you'll, you know, don't, you know, you can correct me if I didn't hear you right, but you're saying that, Death and the process of dying is still something that frightens you, and that's the process what, of dying. The process of dying frightens you. And saying yeah. goodbye to people is something you're not looking forward to. No, it seems totally fair enough. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, being surrounded by it every day makes you try and live every day more presently. Yes, and m connecting with people deliberately more often through your day. You don't get it every day, but that you try super hard to enjoy even the small things mm. and that makes you feel really, really good when yeah. you do it. You know that James Taylor song, Shower the People You Love With Love? I'm not familiar with it. Okay, listen to it. It's okay. a cool song. Um, and it just says, shower the people you love with love. Show them that you care. I think if you can pick that little piece up and it's not even just necessarily showering the people you love with love but it's... Be kind to others, but really be kind to yourself too. Start your day with being kind to yourself. Okay. And then from there, 
let's all do our best to be kind to the next person next to us, you know. And we don't do it all well. Oh, look, my, my kids and my husband are going to hear this and going to go home and think, oh, well, you know, what about the night you came home and was the screaming banshee at home? But, you know. <laughs> I heard the disclaimer. You said I don't get it right every day. I definitely don't. That is a disclaimer. <laughs> Certainly got it wrong many a time. But, oh, but that's, that's, that's my goal, you know. That's, that's a goal. That's what I want to do. I just want to connect as best I can every day. Oh, I'm really grateful you came around today. Thank you. Thank you. That was Danita Menon. You can find out about her and the work that she does by following on Twitter, the Leukemia Foundation. It's leukemia, A-U-S-L-E-U-K-A-E-M-I-A-A-U-S. Leukemia Oz AUS on Twitter. Thanks again to everyone on Patreon that supports the show. Without you, I can't make the show. So thank you very much as well. If you are listening to this part of the show, congratulations, you got to the end bit. Um, just take a photo of what you're listening to right now. Show me what you've been doing while you've been listening to the show and then send it to me. Send us your email at gmail.com or tag me on Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook or wherever it is that you tag people. All right. Have a cracking day. Whatever you're doing with your day, I hope it's lovely and beautiful and you live it, damn it, that you live it because that's what Danita was talking about, wasn't she? To live it. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Have a beautiful week. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.